0: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. For those of you who don't know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, business motivation, and also podcasts. They've recently launched their newest plan called Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to their Plus catalog, filled with thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, and connects you to just amazing content. The best time to try it is now with their holiday offer, because for only 4 dollars a month for your first six months. This is a fantastic deal. And all you have to do to get it is visit audible.com slash Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, or text Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. 500. I love Audible and listen all the time in my car and on walks. I recently finished Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok, also Small Animals by Kim Brooks, His Only Wife by Peace Medi, and also On All Fronts by Clarissa Ward. So those are four of my recent ones. Um, I hope you'll join me in checking out Audible, audible.com slash or text Zibby to 500-500. Did I say that enough times? Clarissa Ward is the author of On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. She is CNN's chief international correspondent. In her 15-year career spanning Fox, CBS, and ABC, Ward has reported from front lines across the world. She's received five Emmy Awards, two George Foster Peabody Awards, two Alfred DuPont Columbia University Awards, two Edward R. Murrow Awards for Distinguished Journalism, honors from the Radio and Television Correspondents Association, the 2016 David Kaplan Award from the Overseas Press Club, and the Excellence in International Reporting Award from the International Center for Journalists. She graduated with distinction from Yale University and in 2013 received an Honorary Doctor of Letters degree from Middlebury College in Vermont. She currently lives in London. Welcome, Clarissa. Thank you so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. Thank you so much for having me on. And how great we just made all these like personal connections that we should have known each other ahead of time, but we didn't. But anyway, here we are. <laughs> now we're reading. Yeah. Now we now here we go. Okay. So on all fronts, your latest your your memoir, not your latest your memoir just came out and details your incredible experiences as this award winning badass basically journalist who I cannot believe how much you've accomplished since graduating after me from Yale. It's like (laughs) amazing and humbling and I'm just totally impressed. So can you please tell listeners what your book is about and then what inspired you to sit down and write the story of your life so far?
1: So... I mean, the book is really about my journey starting from my childhood and it wasn't necessarily a childhood where it would have been an obvious trajectory for me to go on and become a, a war correspondent. And then through 9-11, which for me was kind of an epiphany moment. I was studying comparative literature at Yale. I thought I wanted to be an actress. Suddenly my world was turned upside down and I became consumed by this idea that I wanted to go out there and understand how this had happened and why this had happened and what was at the root of it. And I really wanted to be at the tip of the spear. And yeah, then it sort of basically goes through my career because I think the problem is, you know, when you're watching the news, you're only getting half of the story. You're only seeing what's happening in front of the camera. You're not seeing what's happening behind the camera. You're not seeing these beautiful moments of human connection, moments of laughter, acts of kindness, acts of bravery and sacrifice. And, and those are the moments, to be honest, that first of all, make this, I think, like the best job in the world, but they're also the moments that really shape the way you see and understand the world or a culture or a conflict. And so I kind of wanted to share that with a wider audience. I wanted people who are not, you know, slavishly following every development in Syria to be able to connect to people in Syria and and see the conflict through their eyes and and feel it but do it in a way where it's kind of more approachable it's like going on a journey with me to some of these really exciting and interesting and often difficult and dangerous places i only really decided that i wanted to write a book when i got pregnant with my first son and i was like okay i really need to have some kind of a record for him because i'm probably not going to tell him a lot of these stories at the dinner table but i want him to know about these things and to know who I am other than being mom.
0: I read your Glamour article just about this. It felt I work in some of the most dangerous places in the world. Motherhood hasn't changed that. And you talk obviously about having a newborn and a two-year-old and how it feels to like still be the one juggling the playdates while you're at war, you know, like on the battlefield, essentially still dealing with like playgroup. And at your point, of course, the article is much more complex than that, which is a lot of people have thought you're going to give it up now that you have two kids and, oh, you must be staying home now. And you're like, would a, would a man in the same position professionally be asked the same thing? So I just was hoping you could talk about that because I thought it was yeah. such a, a powerful piece.
1: Thank you. I mean, you know, it is, it's a really, it's a really tough one because on the, on the one hand, yeah, I get a little bit like, come on, I know so many dads doing this job and I know they're not being asked every five minutes if they're going to keep doing this work now that they're fathers. On the other hand, I do get it. I get why people ask that. And I do really take my security very seriously. And I take my responsibility for midwifing these two young souls into the world really seriously as well. So I think it's a fair question and I've given it a lot of thought. And really what I sort of come up with at the end of the day is, okay, there have to be boundaries and there have to be limits. There are certain assignments that I won't do if they're too dangerous. I will actively avoid being in a kind of really kinetic situation on a front line. I won't be away for longer than two weeks max, but ideally one week. And I do my due diligence for months to plan these trips to the best of my ability to be sure to mitigate every single risk. But I feel like it's important to have mothers covering war. I think we bring a different perspective to the table. I think that I have changed a lot since becoming a mother. I know I've become more emotionally porous. I feel like my heart is sort of out there beating in the wind, sensitive to every small act of suffering I see or a child or a woman who's pregnant or a mother making sacrifices for her child. I just feel acutely attuned to it and profoundly moved by it. And I hope that makes its way into my reporting. And I, 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 you know, maybe if there were more mothers covering war, we wouldn't have so many wars, which is not to say that I think all moms should leave their kids and head to the front line. Not at all it's not for everyone and we need to have a diversity of voices telling these stories. I guess that's my point.
0: Moms don't have time to go to war. I don't know.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Definitely not.
0: So what do you think it was? And I know you spell out so much of this in the book and you take us all the way back to even like childhood babysitters and like all of it. But like, what do you think made you able to do this job so well? Like, this isn't something that everybody could just hop into and excel at. Like, I know I couldn't do it. I have too much fear and anxiety to even like, you know, fly to visit my grandmother right now. So like, how, no, seriously, how do you, is it, is it bravery? Is it
1: like, tell me, no. what do you think it is? What is it? It's it's definitely not bravery because I don't think I'm exceptionally brave. I'm able to stay calm in incredibly stressful situations, but on the inside, I'm a wreck and I get very scared. So it's not bravery. I think it's I think it's a combination of things. Like if I'm being generous with myself, it's, you know, I was an only child. My parents were very busy with their careers always. And I had to be able to, Perform to get attention. And that meant learning to tell stories in a sort of compelling way. And it also meant learning to be really adaptable. I went to boarding school at the age of 10 years old and I had come from the US and it was miserable. I hated it, but I understood that I needed to, it was like a sink or swim situation. I needed to fit in, I needed to make friends, I needed to make it work. And I did. And that has allowed me that skill, I think, in my career to kind of go into any culture in any place in the world and form human connections with people and just sort of immerse myself. And as long as I have a working Wi-Fi connection and maybe air conditioning at a (laughs) push, like, I'm okay. I'll be okay. But I also think yeah, there's a level of passion that you have to have because there is a lot of sacrifice that comes with a job like this, both in terms of your personal life and trying to make that work. And in terms of like the emotional toll that obviously this kind of work inevitably takes. So you really have to want it deep, deep, deep in your core. And I tell that all the time to young journalists who are like, what should I do this? And I'm like, if you're even asking yourself that question, it's not going to happen. Like you have to want this with every fiber of your being. You have to feel it's a vocation. Interesting. And tell me
0: more about the 9-11 experience for you and how this became your calling.
1: So, I mean, you know, I don't know what your experience was like at Yale, but like my experience at Yale was... I mean, it was tremendous. It was so thrilling in terms of, you know, the incredible education and and campus life and, and all of it. We were making movies and starting magazines and, you know, enjoying French new wife cinema classes. And I had pink hair and lots of piercings and was indulging in all sorts of, you know, more superficial self-exploration, let's say. Then 9-11 happened and it was like a thunderbolt from the sky, right? It was like, oh my goodness. Like, this has been lovely, but let's face it, there is like some really important stuff happening in the world. And it's been happening for a while and I haven't been engaged and I haven't been being attention. And why do these people hate us so much? And 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 what do, the, what do they understand about America versus how America sees itself and how can they be engaged with and how can there be better communication? Because it, it felt to me on some level that, this mutual process of dehumanization and miscommunication, that it was really fundamentally arising from this failure to understand each other. And keep in mind, you know, I'm 22. Okay. There's so there's a lot of idealism and hubris at work, but I became impassioned by this idea that I wanted to go and act as a communicator between worlds and in the process of going to these places, take something of America with me to share with them, but also take their stories back to America And I have subsequently realized that, you know, that's a hard job because not everybody wants to hear that. Some people think that listening or humanizing the other is tantamount to weakness. And so it's been a humbling journey in many ways, but also one that I'm profoundly grateful for.
0: Wow. And you're so articulate. I, f- I love when you're like p- listening to people who speak in like complete paragraphs. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like there are speech writers who would want to just like grab what you just said and throw it down on the page and claim it as their own. It's awesome. I have such appreciation. Thank, thank for- you language. Anyway. (laughs) So when you keep going from place to place, I know you've worked in Moscow and Syria and you've been everywhere, like Bin Laden, like you just, you've like traversed the planet essentially. How do you, and I know, yes, okay, fine. Only child and, you know, performance, but how do you literally land on your feet everywhere you go? How do you just pick up and immerse yourself in something totally new with,
1: how do you do it? Yeah. So, I mean, what drew me to television rather than print is that television is a team sport and it's collaborative and you work with a cameraman and a producer. And um, that really, for me, is a hugely important part of what I do. And I thrive on that collaboration. And I really get a lot of energy from just joking around and, and, and hanging out because what people never tell you about covering war is like, 99% of it is killing time and waiting for something big to happen. And then 1% of it is like totally mental and everything is going off and you're just trying to get as much done as you can. And then it's back to sitting around and, you know, waiting for a press conference, waiting for a ride to the front line, waiting, waiting, waiting is a huge theme. So you need to be with people in the field who make you laugh, who keep you grounded, who keep you sane, who look out for you, who feed you, who you feed. And and that camaraderie is a huge part of it. And definitely that's what's allowed me to kind of parachute into all these crazy places and live in Beirut and Baghdad and Beijing and Moscow and all the places that I've lived, because it is lonely. It is lonely. And and definitely when I've been on my own on these trips and some of them I've had to do alone, you have moments where you witness something so beautiful or so profound or so sad or whatever it may be. And you're like, ah, oh, it's it's tinged with this real sense of, of, of loneliness that you can't share it with other people in that moment, people who you love or people who you work with. So it is hard to be away from home for so long. And it is hard... As, as successful as you can be at it, immersing yourself in other people's lives. They are other people's lives at the end of the day. And I think one of the most challenging parts of the job is trying to carve out your own real life. And what does that look like? And where is that? And who's a part of that? Because it's not possible really to do this forever, constantly being in other people's lives.
0: Right. So when you come home and you have your husband, like, let's just say even before kids, like how do you navigate going through intense, Mm. you know, you would think you'd come back with PTSD like every week and then you come back and maybe like your girlfriend who we were talking about earlier, who we both know, like if, like, how do you confront then a girlfriend who's just having like relationship problems when you've been watching like a man be carried in a casket, like through the streets, how do you keep perspective and relate really to everybody else?
1: So I think this is one of the biggest challenges of the job, to be honest, because you are straddling different worlds and and, and shuttling back and forth. It's like, you know, it's polar opposites. And how do you acclimatize? And I think there's a lot of guilt as well that comes with leaving the front lines of Aleppo and, you know, going to the south of France and sitting with my girlfriends around the pool drinking rosé. It's like, on what planet is this okay? (laughs) Okay. On what planet does this make any sense or is there any justice in this world? It's a lot. What you come to realize as you do the job longer is that if you can't make that work, if you can't experience joy and allow yourself to have that joy and love and spiritual nourishment or physical decadence, pampering, whatever it is that you need to fill the tank when you're at home, you can't go back out and do the job again. You need to fill the tank. And once you understand that, you're able to navigate it a little bit better. There have been times, and you know, I talk about this in the book, where I would come back and I didn't feel like I wanted to be me anymore. I didn't feel in love with my life anymore. I would bristle when my husband would try to hug me. I would zone out when I would go out with girlfriends for dinner and catch up with them. They would ask me sincerely about Syria, and I would not be able to engage with them on it. And that is not a healthy state to be in. And so you do need to be proactive if you're doing this kind of work and you're witnessing this kind of trauma. You need to be proactive about your mental health. You need to be seeing a therapist. You need to start to recognize the telltale signs of when you're burning out a little bit or when you are getting too detached and too numb because it's a little counterintuitive. You see movies and you think, oh, they see something bad and then you feel sad. It's like, no, feeling sad would be great because that means I'm processing. There's catharsis in grief or sadness. There is not any catharsis in feeling numb in feeling detached, in feeling irascible. And and that's when you know that you really need to to do some work to get back to a place where you can feel joy, where you can feel love, and where you can feel connection.
0: You have a great therapist, if that's why. Yeah. I mean, I need this person's number Instantly, I think I have a lot of people who could benefit from this information. <laughs> or you're just like super highly evolved and and self aware, which is also fantastic. You know, it's a great great combination. <laughs> Thank you. So tell me about the process of writing this book. Mm. When did you find the time to do this, and how long did it take, and all
1: that? Yeah so I wrote it on my maternity leave, you know, because masochism comes naturally to me. I was like, what should I do with this time I have off as a first time mother? And I was like, I know, I'll write a book. And I started out the process for me was like, I'm going to write a thousand words a day. And then I quickly realized that didn't make sense for me because there would be days where I could write a thousand words, no problem. And there'd be other days where I would become too obsessive about this word count thing and and it was impeding the flow if you like. So then I shifted gears and I was like, okay, write as much as you want or as little as you want, but just sit down for 2 to 3 hours every day and write. And that's manageable even when you have a baby and I was lucky I had a maternity nurse and, and my parents were around a lot of my husband so I had a lot of support but two to three hours was manageable. And what I think, you know, many people who write memoirs find is that when you're writing about your own experiences, it's a lot easier, right? It does flow. And especially when it comes from a place of truth, it's an amazing experience. You're just like, wow, all I'm doing right now is like typing out the words that are pouring out of me. That was the first draft. Then I went back to work. So the first draft was done in like three months. The second draft took almost a year because I was back at work. I was traveling a lot and it was much more difficult to find the time to really immerse myself again in it. And the second round seemed this, a lot of kind of flesh out a bit here, you know, what the situation was like in Syria. You know, it's more like the, you know, it's stuff I know, but it's like more the research, the kind of, let me tell you in three paragraphs, like the history of Syria part. And uh, so that requires a bit more kind of discipline, I would say. And that was, that was harder. The first round flow, the second round was like work. <laughs> Do you feel like
0: now that you've had all this exposure and research and writing about it, you have like, intense political views? Like, does it does it shift how you feel about, like, international relations
1: and all of that on, like, a bigger picture scale? It's interesting you ask that. I think not so much about political issues. I mean, I'm pretty passionate about Syria, and I have pretty strong views on that. And obviously, I, like, testified at the United Nations Security Council, which is, you know, kind of on the edge of, like, are you a journalist or an activist? So I've definitely entered that hazy space, let's say. But for the most part, I think what writing did actually was to give me more courage of my convictions in terms of what makes a great journalist, what makes a great story, and what these sort of human moments of connection. I know I keep coming back to that, but like it made me understand better why I do this and what it's all about for me. And, and the privilege that comes, not just with witnessing history, which I have had the fortune of doing on occasion, but of making profound connections with people who live a hundred thousand miles away in every metaphorical sense of that, you know?
0: And so then how did you deal with COVID? How did you like, <laughs> when the brakes slammed on your life, how did you cope? Was, how was well, it being back?
1: So I was heavily pregnant. So basically everyone was on lockdown with me. I was already on lockdown. But it, listen, it was really challenging because it's the first war I've covered from my living room. And I think it's a very tough story to cover in terms of the way I like to cover stories, which is usually with more of a human angle. And so you have to rely a lot on technology and getting people to do video diaries. And, and it's, it's hard. I definitely learned a lot. And I'm still thinking, now I'm on maternity leave. It also meant that my book release was delayed by six months. That's right. I had. Yeah. So which was a blessing in some ways, because I don't think I realized quite how much work releasing a book is. It turns out it's basically <laughs> a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling this a maternity leave. But basically it's a full-time job. It's a really fun full-time job because you're out there talking about something that you feel passionate and excited about. But yeah, I'm definitely thinking now of like, okay, I'll be going back to work. I'll probably go back after the election. I have no idea what the world's going to look like, both in terms of the election and in terms of COVID. And what kinds of stories are people gonna want to hear? This is one of these things, COVID, much like 9-11, it's a a bolt from the sky again that's going to profoundly change the way we live and function as a society in ways that we don't really yet understand. We haven't quite got our arms around it. So it's going to be tremendously interesting, but it's definitely going to be challenging as well. Yes, I would agree with that.
0: (laughs) Would you ever now, knowing how much work is involved in the whole thing, would you ever write another book? Or are you like, this is I, great and, you know, I'm down. You know, I haven't prepared. started
1: therapy for that yet. <laughs> but no, yes. I At some point, I would like to write a book, another book, but not for a while. <laughs> not for a while. Oh my gosh. Do you find time to read yourself? I really wish that I had more, I used to be a voracious reader of novels and, you know, I was like a conflict major and that's really what I loved. What language, which two languages did you? I did French, Italian and Russian, but Russian, my Russian wasn't good enough. So I was reading in translation, but as you know, I mean, hence the name of the podcast, having kids is like, wow, when do you find time? You know, I have this beautiful stack of books by my bedside. And then I get into bed and like my husband's reading Netflix and I'm sort of making sure that I haven't like missed 50 Zoom calls or whatever. And I get the book out and it's like, and then, you know, before I know it, I'm like, you know, (laughs) so it's like, it's really hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not. One way that I get to read books is that people ask me a lot to write blurbs for their books. So that's great because then you really have to read the book, right? And so I, I do try to read, but man, I really wish I had more time and that I could read more. And that's why I think it's so awesome what you're doing because, you know, we do need to carve out more time and and find these little moments to to read. And it's such a it's such an important thing that we've I think social media and everything is we've all gotten a little bit distracted.
0: Well, I hope like by doing the show that I entice people to read because once they hear somebody's story like yours, they're like, oh my gosh, I have to hear more. I want to read the whole thing. So that's my goal. <laughs> kind of whet the appetite, like having movie trailers. Yes. This is like the book trailer <laughs> channel yes. kind or of something.
1: No. Yeah. And believe me, authors are so grateful to you for that. And your sincerity and your curiosity and enthusiasm is just really, really awesome. Oh, thanks. I know I feel like a
0: child. I really do get like so excited. <laughs> you know, but I do. But it's really awesome. And how great to like you know, my kids just went to school and now they're only in school in real life for the mornings, my little guys at least. So they come home after three and a half hours. And my daughter was just at lunch and she was like, Wow, I feel like I didn't even leave. And I was like, yeah, I feel like that too. Except that I had three podcasts this morning, and I met the most interesting women ever. And I talked to yeah. somebody in Florence, and I talked to somebody in Chicago, and I talked to somebody. You know, it's just like how else would I ever meet all these interesting people? So I, yeah, I am feel very lucky. That's
1: kind of like my job, though. You know, I feel the same way, and I think that's how you know when you're onto a good thing, right? It's not about whatever the trappings of success might look. It's about that kind of, wow, I'm really excited. I'm learning. I'm meeting interesting people. I'm seeing different ideas. And that is, that's the thrill of it. That's the excitement.
0: And then like, once you're in it, more ideas and more things happen, you know, like as opposed to when I was home with my twins who are now 13, like when they were little and every day was like a thousand hours long. And I was just like, I can't even think of a single essay to write right now. You know, so burnt out. I'm just like, now it's like you know you throw one thing like with you I'm sure like you just throw one more thing in the fire and you're already going at warp speed so oh yeah yeah no. no it's long long days short years yes exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it was so great to talk to you thanks for coming on moms no time to read books oh, and thank thanks for sharing your journey with everybody and yeah I'll look for you eventually on TV and
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, whatever or in person hopefully if if things ever if in we ever find it would be great vaccine. it would be even better
0: <laughs> <laughs> it would
1: be awesome. Yes.
0: All right. So I'll talk to you soon. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Larissa. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks for Audible sponsoring this episode. Get your amazing deal $4.95 for six months, for your first six months for their holiday Audible Plus offer. Go to audible.com slash zibby or text Zibi to 500-500. Thanks, Audible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.